Book the Third, Part Six of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the Third, Part Six. A quick, arrested expression in her two sapphire eyes, accompanied by a little, a very little blush which loitered long, was all the outward disturbance that the sight of her lover caused. The habit of self-repression at any new emotional impact was instinctive with her always. Somerset could not say more than a word. He looked his intense solicitude, and Paula spoke. She declared that this was an unexpected pleasure. Had he arranged to come on the tenth as she wished? How strange that they should meet thus, and yet not strange the world was so small. Somerset said that he was coming on the very day she mentioned, that the appointment gave him infinite gratification, which was quite within the truth. Come into this shop with me, said Paula with good-humoured authoritativeness. They entered the shop and talked on while she made a small purchase. But not a word did Paula say of her sudden errand to town. I am having an exciting morning, she said. I am going from here to catch the one o'clock train to Markton. It is important that you get there this afternoon, I suppose? Yes, you know why. Not at all. The hunt ball. It was fixed for the sixth, and this is the sixth. I thought they might have asked you. No, said Somerset, a trifle gloomily. No, I am not asked. But it is a great task for you, a long journey and a ball all in one day. Yes, Charlotte said that, but I don't mind it. You are glad you are going? Are you glad? he said softly. Her air confessed more than her words. I am not so very glad that I am going to the Hunt Ball, she replied confidentially. Thanks for that, said he. She lifted her eyes to his for a moment. Her manner had suddenly become so nearly the counterpart of that in the tea-house that to suspect any deterioration of affection in her was no longer generous. It was only as if a thin layer of recent events had overlaid her memories of him until his presence swept them away. Somerset looked up, and, finding the shopman to be still some way off, he added, When will you assure me of something in return for what I assured you that evening in the rain? Not before you have built the castle. My aunt does not know about it yet, nor anybody. I ought to tell her. No, not yet. I don't wish it. Then everything stands as usual? He lightly nodded. That is, I may love you, but you still will not say you love me. He nodded again, and directing his attention to the advancing shopman, said, Please, not a word more. Soon after this they left the jewellers and parted, Paula driving straight off to the station, and Somerset going on his way, uncertainly happy. His re-impression after a few minutes was that a special journey to town to fetch that magnificent necklace which she had not once mentioned to him, but which was plainly to be the medium of some proud purpose with her this evening, was hardly in harmony with her assertions of indifference to the attractions of the Hunt Ball. He got into a cab and drove to his club, where he lunched, and mopingly spent a great part of the afternoon in making calculations for the foundations of the castle works. Later in the afternoon he returned to his chambers, wishing that he could annihilate the three days remaining before the tenth, particularly this coming evening. On his table was a letter in a strange writing, 
and, indifferently turning it over, he found from the superscription that it had been addressed to him days before at the Lord Quantock Arms Hotel, Markton, where it had lain ever since, the landlord probably expecting him to return. Opening the missive, he found to his surprise that it was, after all, an invitation to the Hunt Ball. Too late, said Somerset, to think I should be served this trick a second time. After a moment's pause, however, he looked to see the time of day. It was five minutes past five, just about the hour when Paula would be driving from Markton Station to Stancy Castle to rest and prepare herself for her evening triumph. There was a train at six o'clock, timed to reach Markton between eleven and twelve, which, by great exertion, he might save even now, if it were worth while to undertake such a scramble for the pleasure of dropping into the ball at a late hour. A moment's vision of Paula moving to swift tunes on the arm of a person or persons unknown was enough to impart the impetus required. He jumped up, flung his dress clothes into a portmanteau, sent down to call a cab, and in a few minutes was rattling off to the railway which had borne Paula away from London just five hours earlier. Once in the train, he began to consider where and how he could most conveniently dress for the dance. The train would certainly be half an hour late. Half an hour would be spent in getting to the town hall, and that was the utmost delay tolerable if he would secure the hand of Paula for one spin, or be more than a mere dummy behind the earlier arrivals. He looked for an empty compartment at the next stoppage, and finding the one next to his own unoccupied, he entered it and changed his raiment for that in his portmanteau during the ensuing run of twenty miles. Thus prepared, he awaited the marked platform which was reached as the clock struck twelve. Somerset called a fly and drove at once to the town hall. The borough natives had ascended to their upper floors and were putting out their candles one by one as he passed along the streets. But the lively strains that proceeded from the central edifice revealed distinctly enough what was going on among the temporary visitors from the neighbouring manors. The doors were opened for him and entering the vestibule lined with flags, flowers, evergreens and escutcheons, he stood looking into the furnace of gaiety beyond. It was some time before he could gather his impressions of the scene, so perplexing were the lights, the motions, the toilets, the full-dress uniforms of officers, and the harmonies of sound. Yet light, sound, and movement were not so much the essence of that giddy scene as an intense aim at obliviousness in the beings composing it. For two or three hours at least those whirling young people meant not to know that they were mortal. The room was beating like a heart, and the pulse was regulated by the trembling strings of the most popular quadrille band in Wessex. But at last his eyes grew settled enough to look critically around. The room was crowded, too crowded. Every variety of fair one, beauties, primary, secondary and tertiary, appeared among the personages composing the throng. There were suns and moons, also pale planets of little account. Broadly speaking, these daughters of the county fed into two classes. One, the pink-faced, unsophisticated girls from neighbouring rectories and small country houses, who knew not town except for an occasional fortnight, and who spent their time from Easter to Lammas Day, much as they spent it during the remaining nine months of the year. The other class were the children of the wealthy landowners who migrated each season to the townhouse. These were pale and collected, showed less enjoyment in their countenances, and more in general an approximation to the languid manners of the capital. A quadrille was in progress, 
and Somerset scanned each set. His mind had run so long upon the necklace that his glance involuntarily sought out that gleaming object rather than the personality of its wearer. At the top of the room, there he beheld it. But it was on the neck of Charlotte de Stancy. The whole lucid explanation broke across his understanding in a second. His dear Paula had fetched the necklace that Charlotte should not appear to disadvantage among the county people by reason of her poverty. It was generously done. A disinterested act of sisterly kindness. Theirs was the friendship of Hermia and Helena. Before he had got further than to realise this, there wheeled round among the dancers a lady whose tournure he recognised well. She was Paula. And to the young man's vision a superlative something distinguished her from all the rest. This was not dress or ornament, for she had hardly a gem upon her, her attire being a model of effective simplicity. Her partner was Captain de Stancy. The discovery of this latter fact slightly obscured his appreciation of what he had discovered just before. It was with rather a lowering brow that he asked himself whether Paula's predilection d'artiste, as she called it, for the distancy line, might not lead to a predilection of a different sort for its last representative, which would be not at all satisfactory. The architect remained in the background till the dance drew to a conclusion, and then he went forward. The circumstance of having met him by accident once already that day seemed to quench any surprise in Miss Powers's bosom at seeing him now. There was nothing in her parting from Captain de Stancy, when he led her to a seat, calculated to make Somerset uneasy after his long absence. Though, for that matter, this proved nothing. For, like all wise maidens, Paula never ventured on the game of the eyes with a lover in public, well knowing that every moment of such indulgence overnight might mean an hour's sneer at her expense by the indulged gentleman next day, when weighing womankind by the aid of a cold morning light and a bad headache. While Somerset was explaining to Paula and her aunt the reason of his sudden appearance, their attention was drawn to a seat a short way off by a fluttering of ladies round the spot. In a moment it was whispered that somebody had fallen ill, and in another that the sufferer was Mr. Stancy. Paula, Mrs. Goodman and Somerset at once joined the group of friends who were assisting her. Neither of them imagined for an instant that the unexpected advent of Somerset on the scene had anything to do with the poor girl's indisposition. She was assisted out of the room, and her brother, who now came up, prepared to take her home, Somerset exchanging a few civil words with him, which the hurry of the moment prevented them from continuing. Though, on taking his leave with Charlotte, who was now better, de Stancy informed Somerset, in answer to a cursory inquiry, that he hoped to be back again at the ball in half an hour. When they were gone, Somerset, feeling that now another dog might have his day, sounded Paula on the delightful question of a dance. Paula replied in the negative. How is that? asked Somerset with reproachful disappointment. I cannot dance again, she said in a somewhat depressed tone. I must be released from every engagement to do so on account of Charlotte's illness. I should have gone home with her if I had not been particularly requested to stay a little longer, since it is as yet so early, and Charlotte's illness is not very serious. If Charlotte's illness was not very serious, Somerset thought, Paula might have stretched a point. 
but not wishing to hinder her in showing respect to a friend so well liked by himself, he did not ask it. Estancia promised to be back again in half an hour, and Paula had heard the promise. But at the end of twenty minutes, still seeming indifferent to what was going on around her, she said she would stay no longer, and, reminding Somerset that they were soon to meet and talk over the rebuilding, drove off with her aunt to Stancy Castle. Somerset stood looking after the retreating carriage till it was enveloped in shades that the lamps could not disperse. The ballroom was now virtually empty for him, and feeling no great anxiety to return thither, he stood on the steps for some minutes longer, looking into the calm, mild night, and at the dark houses behind whose blinds lay the burghers with their eyes sealed up in sleep. He could not but think that it was rather too bad of Paula to spoil his evening for a sentimental devotion to Charlotte, which could do the latter no appreciable good. And he would have felt seriously hurt at her move if it had not been equally severe upon Captain de Stancy, who was doubtless hastening back full of a belief that she would still be found there. The star of gas-jets over the entrance threw its light upon the walls on the opposite side of the street, where there were notice-boards of forthcoming events. In glancing over these for the fifth time, his eye was attracted by the first words of a placard in blue letters of a size larger than the rest, and, moving onward a few steps, he read, Stancy Castle, by the kind permission of Miss Power, a play will shortly be performed at the above castle in aid of the funds of the county hospital by the officers of the Royal Horse Artillery, Markton Barracks, assisted by several ladies of the neighbourhood. The cast and other particulars will be duly announced in small bills. Places will be reserved on application to Mr. Clangham, High Street, Markton, where a plan of the room may be seen. N.B. The castle is about twenty minutes' drive from Markton Station, to which there are numerous convenient trains from all parts of the county. In a profound study, Somerset turned and re-entered the ballroom, where he remained gloomily standing here and there for about five minutes, at the end of which he observed Captain de Stancy, who had returned punctually to his word, crossing the hall in his direction. The gallant officer darted glances of lively search over every group of dancers and sitters, and then, with rather a blank look in his face, he came on to Somerset. Replying to the latter's inquiry for his sister that she had nearly recovered, he said, I don't see my father's neighbours anywhere. They've gone home, replied Somerset, a trifle dryly. They asked me to make their apologies to you for leading you to expect they would remain. Miss Power was too anxious about Mr. Stancy to care to stay longer. The eyes of de Stancy and the speaker met for an instant. That curious guarded understanding or inimical confederacy which arises at moment between two men in love with the same woman was present here, and in their mutual glances each said as plainly as by words that her departure had ruined his evening's hope. They were now about as much in one mood as it was possible for two such differing natures to be. Neither cared further for elaborating giddy curves on that town hall floor. They stood talking languidly about this and that local topic, till Stancy turned aside for a short time to speak to a dapper little lady who had beckoned to him. In a few minutes he came back to Somerset. Mrs. Camperton, the wife of Major Camperton of my Beatry, would very much like me to introduce you to her. 
She is an old friend of your father's and has wanted to know you for a long time. Stancy and Somerset crossed over to the lady, and in a few minutes, thanks to her flow of spirits, she and Somerset were chatting with remarkable freedom. It is a happy coincidence, continued Mrs. Camperton, that I should have met you here immediately after receiving a letter from your father. Indeed, he reached me only this morning. He's been so kind. We are getting up some theatricals, as, as you know, I suppose, to help the funds of the county hospital, which is in debt. I have just seen the announcement, nothing more. Yes, such an estimable purpose, and as we wished to do it thoroughly well, I asked Mr. Somerset to design us the costumes, and he has now sent me the sketches. It is quite a secret at present, but we are going to play Shakespeare's romantic drama, Love's Labour's Lost, and we hope to get Miss Power to take the leading part. You see, being such a handsome girl, and so wealthy, and rather an undiscovered novelty in the county as yet, she would draw a crowded room and greatly benefit the funds. Miss Power going to play herself? I'm rather surprised, said Somerset. Whose idea is all this? Oh, Captain Testantis, he's the originator entirely. You see, he is so interested in the neighbourhood, his family having been connected with it for so many centuries, that naturally a charitable object of this local nature appeals to his feelings. Naturally, Alice laconically repeated. And have you settled who is to play the junior gentleman's part, leading lover, hero, or whatever he is called? Not absolutely, though I think Captain de Stancy will not refuse it, and he is a very good figure. At present it lies between him and Mr. Mild, one of our young lieutenants. My husband, of course, takes the heavy line, and I am to be the second lady, though I am rather too old for the part, really. If we can only secure Miss Power for heroine, the cast will be excellent. Excellent, said Somerset, with a spectral smile. End of Book the Third Part 6